Dr. Burris commented on the revolution that's occurred in adjuvant systemic therapy of patients with HER2-positive tumors with the demonstration of about a 50% reduction in relapse rate with the use of the anti-HER2 monoclonal antibody trastuzumab, and I met with Ms. Frances Palmieri, an oncology research nurse who's had an important role in the implementation of one of the four major trials that demonstrated this effect. Ms. Palmieri began by discussing the origins of these studies and the concern about cardiac safety. We conducted through the North Central Cancer Treatment Group N9831, which involved over 3,000 women in the adjuvant setting with trastuzumab. And we actually had three arms in our study where we looked at the control arm without trastuzumab and then an arm with sequential therapy and then one combining paclitaxel and Herceptin. And that was combined with the NSABP study B31 that looked at the two arms of the study that were the same for both of our studies, which is control group and then the combined use of trastuzumab paclitaxel followed by a full year of trastuzumab. That study was developed very early on in the early 90s, and surprisingly, both groups took this issue of cardiac safety very, very seriously and set very strict guidelines for monitoring patients at baseline, which remains probably our most important measurement of left ventricular ejection fraction, and the method we use, whether that's by echocardiogram or by MUGA. You know, it's interesting when you think about it, when those years that the study was being implemented, we didn't know what the impact was going to be on the tumor. So we were particularly concerned because maybe it wasn't going to help at all. Yes. And so actually, I think they set the bar around 4% for heart failure, Correct. which it got very close to. So theoretically, the trial could have gotten stopped because we had no idea, or we hope. But of course, what was seen there was, you know, I guess about a 50% reduction in cancer recurrence. That's correct, 52%. And that really is astounding. And I think one important thing is that we're also considering now what is the longer-term cardiac event. And we now have a modification to N9831 where we're going to look at long-term or six-year cardiac data in these same patients. I think there's been a lot more concern about that in general, not just with her two positive patients. So been some reports now looking at people 20, 30 years later in terms of what the incidence of heart failure is and concern that maybe it's going to be a lot higher than we thought it was going to be just from just anthracyclines. I think it's a significant issue just in terms of the general population and cardiac risk within our population, the aging of our population, obesity issues, hypertension. They're all risk factors that we're seeing that may impact our population and our cancer population significantly. So these women, and I think this is a very important issue for nursing and one where we have the opportunity to make a big impact is looking at survivorship in total with cancer survivors, but especially breast cancer survivors where issues of cardiac, long-term cardiac health and their health promotion, we can teach that to patients. We can tell them we need you to be cognizant of your cardiac status throughout your life. We would like you to be monitored throughout your life. The oncologist may not be the person to follow this breast cancer survivor. It may be a primary care physician. There's been a lot more interest, too, in the possibility that maybe dietary and exercise modification could actually even lower cancer recurrence, but then you have this other issue of cardiovascular health. So I guess there's a couple reasons to bring this up to patients. 
Correct. You know, this is one area where patients can have some control, where we can offer to patients where they say, I'd like to take some alternative or complementary therapy. And we can say, perhaps there's some lifestyle and things you can initiate right now to lower not only your risk of breast cancer, but to modify your risk for other cancer-related and health promotion-related things in the future. Now, for patients who are receiving adjuvant trastuzumab, they're going to be getting this careful monitoring, cardiac monitoring, hopefully with MUGA or ECHO. Is there a significant role for clinical monitoring for heart failure in terms of looking for symptoms or signs, or is that really not relevant because you're testing the patient? No, I think it continues to be relevant because there are associated issues. Has the patient developed hypertension? Is that hypertension uncontrolled? We know that that can lead to progression in cardiac disease and perhaps a rapid progression to CHF. And there is a small population of patients that will develop CHF, where it's not so much just monitoring LVF, seeing small changes and the patient doesn't progress, but rather they acutely develop symptoms of congestive heart failure. And those symptomatic patients need to be monitored for edema, sudden weight changes, shortness of breath, and the things that we can teach patients to report to us and that we can observe. Now, I know you're very involved in clinical research, and now it's been a couple of years since that first explosion of adjuvant trastuzumab data. There are a couple other trials in addition to the two that you mentioned. And now we're gearing up for the next generation of clinical trials, and there's two big ones. And I know you're really involved in the so-called ALTO trial, and then there's Correct. the BETH trial. Can you talk about those strategies and where we're heading in terms of adjuvant therapy of these women? Sure. You know, one very gratifying area of research is that when we can communicate new evidence to patients and say, now we even have new agents that we want to test that are also targeted. We can talk about molecular pathways with patients. And I think that really gives patients a lot of hope, not only in the metastatic setting, but in the adjuvant setting. And with the new set of adjuvant trials, I think there are new things for nurses to learn and to educate patients about, obviously. The combination of two targeted agents explaining a clinical trial where we're using the control of a very successful agent where patients may say, well, if it's so beneficial, why should I go on a trial and try something else? But we know from the courage of women in the past that testing against the gold standard may always give us new information, new survival and better survival for patients. So it'll be a thing of being able to really clearly understand the arms of the trials and the hopes and strategies within combining targeted agents and looking at how they should be given sequentially single agent to improve not only efficacy, but also reduce perhaps some of the symptoms and problems and side effects that we saw from the current agents like cardiac toxicity. So one of the trials, again, the ALTO study, is looking at a new agent, lapatinib, which is an oral anti-HER2 therapy. And as you mentioned, everybody's going to get chemo, but some people get trastuzumab, some will get lapatinib, some will get the combination, and as you said, some will get sort of a sequence. What do we know about lapatinib? It's right now, I guess, it's being used in metastatic disease. Correct. It's currently FDA approved in metastatic breast cancer in combination with capecitabine. So what we know about this drug is based on that experience mostly. It is an oral agent, 
we have certain challenges with oral adherence in patients and understanding compliance issues in oral therapy. So that's one area that will be very different here. What we know about lapatinib is that it is a very tolerable agent. It has to be taken in a certain way where patient will take it on an empty stomach. It's an oral tablet, and they have to take multiple tablets one time a day. This agent is very well tolerated. We have seen diarrhea in patients, and that requires the kind of education to let patients know, well, what is significant diarrhea? Many of our women particularly think that diarrhea is if they go to the bathroom every day and have a bowel movement. So a level of education has to exist about when to report to you diarrhea. Of course, on the study, we'll be following that very carefully. In addition, there may be cosmetic changes with mild kinds of rash, which people have described in the past as acne form, but certainly is not a correct term here, where the rash can be very, very mild. Other things that we've seen with lapatinib are fatigue. And these are kind of issues that we see overall with breast cancer therapy, and especially prolonged therapy, where we have patients on for a year, and we've really got to aggressively manage these kind of fatigue issues and other side effects to allow for good adherence to their treatment regimen. You talked about adherence, and there's been a lot of attention placed on that in terms of other oral therapies in oncology, capecitabine, but also the aromatase inhibitors. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of weird because, at least to me, and I think a lot of people, that a lot of the studies, when they look at pill counts or the amount of medicines used with adjuvant hormonal therapy, find that a lot of people are not taking their medicine. Do you think that's really happening? I do believe that. I think there is some prejudice within the oncology healthcare community that they're perhaps more worried about over-adherence with patients, which we've seen by patients not reporting neuropathy so they don't go off their paclitaxel therapy, for example. But I believe that there are other strategies and barriers to patient adherence with oral therapy, even in oncology. Obviously, there are studies within the cardiovascular world and with TB studies where these drugs significantly added to patient benefit, quality of life, and survival, and patients still were not adherent to therapy. Some things that patients have told me, even with anti-estrogen therapies, tamoxifen, well, I just didn't want to get all those symptoms of menopause, so I thought if I just take a little bit. Again, area for education. Aromatase inhibitors. I had a big affair coming up this weekend, and the AI I'm on makes my bones and my muscles ache. So I did really well by taking the short holiday. So now the next time I'm going to go on vacation for a week, and I'm not going to take it. So then the next time it becomes easier and easier to not take it. And these are psychological things that need constant reinforcement. With oral agents, we perhaps in nursing don't have the type paradigms that we have for IV therapy where we are in control. The patient takes that pill themselves. They control the actual administration. And so to educate them about the benefits on a regular basis and make sure you have some strategy for monitoring that in patients, we can quickly identify barriers for patient adherence, side effects, psychosocial issues, economic issues, but it requires constant 
interview and constant relationship with the patient. So now we've kind of developed with all these new agents, and certainly we know in the future there's going to be many, many more oral agents in the oncology world. We've developed this strategy of kind of making a patient contract, use that good relationship, that immediate relationship and bond we're able to form with patients to say, let's talk about this and let's contract that if you develop barriers to taking your medication, we'll come back and talk about those. I heard a great practical suggestion recently, Dr. Lisa Carey. We were talking about adherence, and she said, you know, I have this question I ask my patients. I ask them, how many times have you missed your medicines in the last week? And I thought, that's really good. I like that. Yeah. You know, because instead of saying, well, are you taking your medicine or more generic, it's just how many pills have you missed? Have you mm-hmm. ever thought about doing that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And with the ALTO trial that you mentioned, our large adjuvant HER2 positive trial, worldwide trial, we developed a quality of life questionnaire and an oral compliance questionnaire where we're actually trying to understand when patients are taking their medications, why they miss, if they miss, and what perhaps some of the implications of that will be. And so I think directly asking a question, not just are you taking it, yes or no, when do you take it, how much do you take, if you missed a dose, why? Just asking very simple questions assists in that. We're talking about recurrence or not, a major event that we're trying to avoid here. And actually now, at least in terms of the endocrine therapy, now we may be talking about 10 or 15 years of treatment. You know, I think the whole concept of ER-positive breast cancer has changed over the last few years. We always sort of had this feeling, well, people can recur later. But I think in terms of really getting a feel for what that risk is and how great it is and the fact that probably more recurrences occur after five years in ER-positive breast cancer. So now you have the challenge of keeping people compliant or adherent to therapy for 10 or 15 years. And I think really it goes back to we're not sure the extent of the problem. You know, Ann Partridge has done a lot of work in that area looking at some of these issues. And I think one of the first things to do, and the ONS has launched an effort to do this, is to actually try to understand if this is a problem. And then understand the barriers to adherence and then develop interventions to work on those issues. Well, I think one thing for sure is when you look at AIs, and that's, you know, I guess if you really look at all the oral medications that are taken in an oncology setting, I would guess by far it's going to be the AIs uh, the most. And you mentioned before the issue of the arthralgias, mm-hmm. which is really something I think in the beginning, which was in you know, 2001, not mm-hmm. that long ago, we didn't quite realize it was going to be as much of Correct. a problem. What's your experience been with arthralgias and AIs? I think it's a significant problem. We try to work with patients and switch agents, switch among the agents to see if one is better tolerated than another agent. And that does sometimes happen. Another issue is to try to get the patients through it, because it seems to me the longer they're on therapy, the better they do with these myalgias and arthralgias. Sometimes it's as simple as adjusting when the patient takes their medication. Really? Yes, and a lot of patients do better taking their medications at night. Hmm. Any rationale to that? I doubt it. Hmm. And this is strictly observational, but we've had patients adjust the time of day they take it, 
what agent they take, all of those things, again, to try to put that control back to the patient to see, is this really a tolerable issue or not for them? I'm curious in turn, I'm going to talk a little bit about chemotherapy. I want to start out in the HER2 negative situation. We were talking mm-hmm. about the management in the HER2 positive patient, which has really changed dramatically now. But there are also a lot of changes that are occurring in the HER2 negative patients. And a big emphasis has been trying to figure out who actually needs chemotherapy. And I'm curious what your take is on how your practice or how practice at Mayo Clinic has changed in the last few years based on the oncotype assay and how that's been incorporated. Yes, that's a very interesting area. And I think for nursing, an area of particular attention, when we talk about how do we assess the risk for recurrence in patients? That's changed dramatically with molecular profiling. And now we have new words like luminal A, luminal B-like, basal-like, that perhaps a lot of the nursing community has not really had experience with. So when they look at some of these molecular assays and what types of risk of recurrence based on molecular features of the tumor, not just the tumor size, the nodes involved, dependent upon the grade of the tumor, et cetera, ERPR. We now have all these other molecular markers to look at. And I think as that education increases to understand this molecular profiling of the patient, we become more and more intent on individualization of patient care. And that really goes with a lot of the nursing models for patients. We do believe in that individualization of patients. So at Mayo, we do look at various factors and suggest trials for patients. We right now have the PAC trial or for Oncotype DX testing where we look at the patient's recurrence risk and speak to the patient about what we believe appropriate therapy will be and then tell them we have this molecular test that may or may not give us additional information about their treatment. And most patients are very eager to know as much about their tumor as they can in terms of risk. Let's talk a little bit about chemotherapy and metastatic disease, again, mm-hmm. in the HER2-negative situation. Mm-hmm. And of course, I know you're involved with a lot of clinical research on new agents, and maybe we can talk about some of the ones that have sort of become, you know, starting to get incorporated into practice over the last few years in terms of chemo for metastatic disease. One, I'm curious in terms of what your experience has been with nabpaclitaxel. Yes, you know, I've been an oncology nurse for many, many years, and the advent of the taxanes in general into breast cancer therapy was a big, big benefit to patients. But it had problems and issues, and one of them is hypersensitivity reactions. And so when we first looked at this agent and talked about writing a protocol and really thinking about investigating it a little more, that was one of the things that we really were interested in. How can we improve the safety profile of drugs that we know to have high efficacy in this population. We were very excited to try that. We found that there were some things during the trial. Obviously, the NAB paclitaxel or albumin-bound paclitaxel or Braxane was interesting because we tried to mix that drug, found that 
there are very particular things with it. Number one, this is albumin bound and albumin foams up when diluents are put in quickly. So we learned that there are certain things we had to educate our pharmacy colleagues about in order to get patients through quickly. One of the benefits of NAB paclitaxel is that you don't have to give pre-medications and the drug can be given in a more rapid infusion. But if you have a patient sitting and waiting while the pharmacy dissolves the drug, that could be a big disadvantage again. So some of the advantages of the drug are that once you learn to mix it correctly, it can be given in a very rapid way. Patients don't need steroid premedication. This is so important for patients, not only in terms of those that have a problem with high blood sugar or diabetes, existing diabetes, but the other issues with steroids, the feelings that patients get of being not themselves when they get a steroid. So it was really quite a big benefit to patients in terms of quality of life to get them in and out of the clinic quickly and allow them to feel better without steroid premedication. You know, it's interesting when you talk to medical oncologists, I don't know, they're not so focused in on the steroid issue. I don't Mm -hmm. know. That's kind of like, well, yeah, but they're not that... I don't find them as excited about it as the nurses are. Mm -hmm. I know I don't like feeling agitated and not being able to sleep. And clearly there have been repeated studies that show that's what happened to people getting Mm pre-meds. And we have to ask those patients these questions in order to best understand how their lives are affected. Often this can be done by asking the family members associated with them. They say after their chemotherapy treatment, they don't sleep all night. And, you know, we want to enhance relationships, not cause further marital strife among our patients. Well, so it's physically debilitating not to sleep. Yes, it is. It's awful. You know, really, sleep is so important to allow you to think clearly and be able to process and do your normal activities. So this issue of fatigue can be even worse in those patients. We really can't minimize that issue at all. Any experience with ixabibolone? It has some characteristics that are similar to the taxanes, where it causes excessive binding of the microtubules and is in this class of drugs of epothalones. And it's been very, very exciting to work with this drug. It is a drug that is mixed with solvents as opposed to NAB paclitaxel, which uses albumin in order to allow this hydrophobic or water-hating drug to be dissolved, paclitaxel. This is a completely different drug. It is not paclitaxel, but has a lot of the nursing issues associated with taxane therapy. And this drug is mixed with cremophore and alcohol, like paclitaxel is. And apparently there is less of that cremophore solution in order to put this drug into solution. Some of the major things we watch with this drug, again, are peripheral sensory, peripheral neuropathy, which can be cumulative, but with ixapepilone seems to be more rapidly reversible, shorter times, less patients off study. You've heard due the same thing with NAB also. Do you think that's Correct. the case? I do believe that. That, and that there, the neuropathy goes away quicker? Well, you know, I have to coach that because one thing I think is very, very effective is that peripheral sensory neuropathy, you don't really have strategies to prevent it or cure it. What you have to do is dose modify and give the drug safely. Use the prescribed time 
For example, with ixapepilone, that has to be a three-hour infusion. More rapid infusion of that drug will cause more severe peripheral neuropathy. With nabpaclitax or abraxane, what we found that was well-established with the studies is that patients have a quicker time to recovery. But once patients get beyond up to like a grade two sensory neuropathy, it's very difficult to get them back to baseline. So you really have to have very keen assessment and question the patient about their symptoms and issues in order to get them back to baseline and then resume the drug. And I guess one big red flag is if they're actually having functional motor problems as opposed to the paresthesias. Is that the way you approach it? Well, we use multiple ways. First of all, with both of these drugs, we see this pattern of distal to medial dysfunction. So that immediate fingertips, toes, numbness, sensory issues are first. And with this issue of overcompliance, I often tell patients, could you button my lab coat? And really, you can tell dysfunction among them. Ask the family, are they dropping things? These things really, by the time you get to motor sensory neuropathy, it's a real done deal. It's a big problem, and patients will need to be taken off the drug or severe dose reduction. So we try to use a strategy of good baseline assessment, continue to compare that against every cycle, and then institute interventions like dose reduction at an early stage when patients go from a grade zero to a grade one or grade one to grade two. Another agent, and it's interesting how many new agents are in oncology and in breast cancer that's exploded in the field in the last couple of years, not just in breast cancer, but lung, colon, renal, is is bevacizumab or Avastin. What's your experience been with that agent? You know, obviously, we participated in studies with that agent, and we've used it in the colorectal setting also in our institution for quite some time. And it is a targeted agent that, again, has its own new arenas for nursing, specifically with hypertension and the rapid onset of hypertension in patients that receive this drug over time. And this drug is also in breast cancer given in combination with other chemotherapy like paclitaxel. So we also watch for some sensory neuropathy, and it comes with a little more baggage in that we need to teach our patients that surgery has to be talked about with us so that we can plan to take the patient off drug or not start them until we have all those issues resolved because of the nature of angiogenesis and interrupting that process for patients who might have surgery. comes in wound healing. Wound healing, correct, and dishedence issues. And that is still important in breast cancer therapy also especially when a patient is considering, for example, having reconstruction at a later date. And those issues need to be discussed with the patient. One other unusual thing with bevacizumab that we sometimes see are these proteinuria issues that we think probably don't have a lot of clinical significance, but we do teach our nursing staff to be aware of a patient who seems dehydrated, has edematous pedal edema and issues. We want to protect them against any kidney damage, obviously. What about hypertension? What have you seen there with bevacizumab? It can be quite progressive, and I think quite a few of our patients have experienced some hypertension. We can get them on medication quickly and get that under control, and we have 
at times held drug until we get the patient's blood pressure under control. And this is something that we've been very aware of, not only in the assessment of patients, but during their therapy. The chemotherapy nurses are aware and patients are aware. I think that as a society, we need to make sure that this issue of hypertension is looked at very carefully. And this is one drug that can cause issues with hypertension in addition to your normal risk. The last thing I want to just chat with you a little bit about is whether there are any questions that you receive from oncology nurses that we haven't covered so far, common questions, or you think common issues or things that are important. I frequently get this question, and not just from nurses, and that is when you have your patient on long-term Herceptin therapy, whether that's in the metastatic or adjuvant therapy, and you go from weekly therapy to Q3-week therapy, or if the patient needs to be held because of a drop in left ventricular ejection fraction, when do you reload a patient? How long should you never do that? Should you occasionally do that? And our rule of thumb is that if a patient is held for you know, two, three-week cycles, that we will reload that patient with a higher dose of trastuzumab. So we frequently get questions about how to manage a patient with Q3-week therapy with trastuzumab. What about fulvestrin? We actually are starting a new study looking at a novel agent with fulvestrin. It's been pretty well accepted by our population, and I think I'm a little surprised by that. Why is that? Because of the administration of it, you know, a different way of giving that drug. But it's been pretty well accepted. We do have a trial looking at the combination of trastuzumab and lapatinib as a cardiac safety trial where we're really looking at these early indicators like BMP, et cetera, to see if we can detect any early cardiac changes and try to have better assessment strategies, not relying on drops in left ventricular ejection fraction. I guess the other big strategy that's being looked at in these patients with HER2-positive tumors is adding in bevacizumab with the chemotherapy and trastuzumab. That's the so-called BETH study, Mm -hmm. which is going to use TCH alone or with bevacizumab. And I guess there also is the question of the heart, of course, because trastuzumab is on board. But kind of the interesting issue there, the fact that you have the bevacizumab in some patients causing hypertension and concerns about the heart. Yes, and I think this is one area where we can make a big impact in controlling it, understanding these issues, and then when we bring this data out into the general population, understanding the population that was studied was carefully screened and monitored and provide that same service to patients who get it off study.